This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. I am delighted to have here with us today Sophie Hanna. She's a best-selling crime fiction writer whose books have sold many millions of copies and are published in 51 countries and 49 languages. At the request of Agatha Christie's family, she has been writing new Hercule Poirot novels since 2014. She also founded and runs the Dream Author Coaching Program. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) It's so nice to have you. It's such a pleasure. So I'm just going to start by asking you how you came to Agatha Christie in the first place. Are you a reader of her work for a long time or, or is that a more recent thing for you? Yes, I'm a reader of her work for <laughs> a very long time. Yeah. Uh, I discovered her for the first time when I was 12. Yeah. Uh, my dad was a collector of cricket books, books about cricket, basically. Uh, I don't know why he collected them, because he never actually read them, but he had <laughs> he had 3,000 cricket books in our house. And in order to find these cricket books, he would go to a lot of secondhand book fairs And one day when I was 12, he came back from one of these book fairs with a copy of an Agatha Christie novel. And it was The Body in the Library. Oh, wonderful. Christie Christie fans will know um, that is one of the the best Miss Marple novels. It's actually, you know, one of my favourite Christie novels still to this day. Um, Mm. So he came back with this copy of The Body in the Library and he said, oh, you like mysteries? Because I'd I'd read all of Enid Blyton's mystery stories by that point. He said, you like mysteries, you know, give this a try. And I read it and I just thought, wow. And then my next thought was, I really hope this woman has written some other books. And not- <laughs> <laughs> so then I spent between the ages of 12 and 14 reading everything that Agatha had ever published. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, from that day, since that day, she has remained my favourite writer. And every 
10 years or so, I would reread not all of her books, but most of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was what is known in the Agatha Christie world as a super fan. And that's <laughs> someone who's not just a fan who loves the books, but someone who's kind of obsessive mm-hmm. and a bit a bit like crazily obsessed with Agatha Christie Uh, I'm one of those super fans and I was you know long before I started writing Poirot novels Mm. and what does that mean to you to be a super fan when you say you're kind of you have an obsessive uh, fascination with her work what does that look like for you I think the difference between being a fan and a super fan is that for me anyway as a super fan I love even the books by Agatha Christie that I don't think are very good I love the fact that she wrote some books which weren't as good as her other books. I love the fact that she also wrote books under the name Mary Westmacott, which were published as romances, but really aren't. (laughs) They're actually brilliant, complex psychological novels. I'm just kind of like obsessed with every little detail about her work, whereas there are other writers of whom I would say I'm a fan. So, like, I'm a big fan of the writer Tana French, for example. I think her books are amazing. And I'm a big, big fan of the writer Ruth Rendell. But Mm. I'm not obsessive about them in the way that I have always been about Agatha Christie. Yeah, I I feel similarly. And I wonder, do you think that has to do with, like, her level of productivity, that we actually just have the access to being that obsessed because there's so much to parse? Um, I don't think that explains my obsession. Okay. I think my obsession is more explained by, I mean, it could be the fact that I formed such a close emotional connection to her books when I was 12. She really was pretty much the first adult writer that I read. You know, I went straight from Enid Blyton's Mysteries for Children to Agatha Christie. So she mm-hmm. was the first writer that I fell in love with. Um, who was like a proper grown-up writer. And she really shaped my ideas of what the ideal crime novel should be and do. So she sort of gave me the blueprint, which I've never, I've never lost since since the age of 12. She mm. she sort of defined for me what the perfect crime novel was. And it was funny, when I was asked to write Poirot novels by Agatha Christie's family, some of my friends and family said, well, how on earth are you going to do that? Your books are so different from Agatha Christie's. Because mm-hmm. by that point, I had published about eight or nine contemporary crime novels. And I thought about it. And I thought, actually, my books are only different from Agatha Christie's on the surface in that they're contemporary. And so the tone and feel of them is very different. But actually, when I looked at what I'd been doing in all of my contemporary crime writing, I saw that I had absolutely stuck the basic kind of principles of what a good crime novel should be and do that I'd learned from Agatha Christie. Uh, Even though, you know, the texture and feel of my crime novels were not similar to hers at that point at all. I always like to, for example, have lots of clues and make the motivation for the reader, you know, the main motivation is is always the solving of the mystery. Mm. Um, And I I like to start my contemporary crime novels with a really baffling and outlandish and sometimes impossible seeming mystery. And that was something I got directly from Agatha Christie. If you think about all of her best and most compelling novels, she very rarely starts with, as it were, a sort of ordinary murder situation. It's very rare that it's like, here's a dead body, here are some suspects, which one committed the crime? It's usually like 
something weird like somebody and that somebody announces in the local newspaper that there's going to be a murder oh, or, one of my favorites yeah 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 a murder is announced one yeah. of the probably probably in fact the best miss marple novel um so yeah she always started with with a premise that was so outlandish and irresistible and impossible seeming that the reader couldn't even begin to speculate what might be going on <laughs> And once yeah. you think, once you as a reader think to yourself, well, I've literally not even got a single theory about what might be going on here, then you're kind of in the literary equivalent of an arm lock where you just have to read on in order to find out. So when I look back at the crime novels I'd written before I was asked to write Poirot novels, I saw that they all began with either a very outlandish or impossible seeming mystery where I'd created the premise specifically so that the reader could not even begin to guess what was going on. And and I'd got that totally from Agatha Christie. Yeah. And so I want to get to you being asked to take on Poirot as a character in a minute. But before that, I'm, I'm interested because you're talking about how much her work imprinted on you in terms of its format. And I'm wondering if you see that beyond your own work in crime fiction. Is that something that you see kind of being a red thread throughout much of the crime fiction that you read or do you even read much crime fiction outside of Christie? Yeah, I read I read almost nothing but crime fiction. <laughs> yeah, so what's interesting is I think I can tell the difference in sort of contemporary crime writing. I think I can usually tell which writers love Agatha Christie and have been influenced by her mm. and which writers do not love Agatha Christie and think oh she's all about the plot and she doesn't do you know serious dark socio-economic conditions or whatever people think who don't who don't rate Agatha Christie I think I can usually tell and, and I think that the books I love in the crime genre are the ones written by people who do love Agatha Christie because my main priority as a reader of crime always is mystery mm. I'm not that interested in crime I mean, mm. if, there, if someone wanted to write about crime and there was no mystery involved, I wouldn't read it. What right. I'm interested in is that feeling of being desperate to know what has happened and being desperate to understand and to know the answer and not knowing the answer, but knowing that I'm going to find out. That sort of mystery and solution combination, that's what I love about crime fiction. And the people who do that best Often I find that they have been heavily influenced by Agatha Christie. And two examples of that, well, Tana French actually is an example of that. Yeah. She's a huge Agatha Christie fan. And so it's no surprise to me that I love her books and that she does suspense really well. And two other examples are uh, the writer Alex Michaelides, author of The Silent Patient. Okay. Huge Agatha Christie fan. And his novels are incredibly mysterious and suspenseful with brilliant sort of clues and twists. Um, and the other example I was going to mention was Ruth Ware. Yeah. Ruth Ware, another massive Agatha Christie fan. Yeah. I've just read her latest novel, The It Girl, and I was on the edge of my seat, desperate to know what was going on. And, you know, Ruth really understands that mystery and solution combination and how important it is. And then by contrast, I read other novels by other crime writers where there's lots and lots of stuff about the detective's personal life and, you know, mm. maybe setting is very well evoked but that mystery and solution engine and that suspense just isn't quite there mm. that's so interesting I, I agree with you and I think it is very clear I feel similarly that when you can read a mystery novel and know immediately 
where their influences are coming from. And also if they're more in the kind of like Nordic noir genre or like the hard boiled kind of LA US genre, you know, these are all like, they all have their place. And I think I personally just respond best and enjoy most the kind of Agatha Christie English style mystery. And I think you're right that it's completely, um, it's it's much more based on mystery than on anything else on on yeah. the the yeah. driving factors of are we going to we are going to solve this mystery but how are we going to get there and and i think that's part of why they're so easy to reread because even yeah. once you know the outcome the the journey to get there is so enjoyable that you can yeah. reread them yeah exactly oh and i reread i mean it's so funny now i remember almost every detail of the plot of almost every Agatha Christie novel. Yes, same. (laughs) Same. (laughs) There are still some that I do forget. So I I couldn't tell you who the murderer was or any details of the plot in both the 450 from Paddington and Mm. a pocket full of rye. For some reason, (laughs) I've read both of of those books about five times each I still don't remember who done it or why so those are good for rereads I've also pretty much forgotten um the moving finger oh. I remember a sort of atmosphere but not who did what and why right but most of them I remember everything but I still enjoy rereading them so much like yeah. every single sentence is so well crafted all the observations are so yes. sharp and witty. And I just still get so much pleasure for them, from them, even when I know every detail of the plot. Absolutely. And and for me, part of it also is how much is fit into a sentence, yes. uh, particularly in character development and character outline. Is It is so hard to do as a writer, and I don't think she gets enough credit for how sharply she can draw something with just a sentence or two. Yeah, um, well, I don't, I don't think she gets enough credit for anything. Yeah, to be I agree. I completely <laughs> well, agree. So many people say, oh, you know, yes, she was a good plotter and she right. wrote, she made good puzzles. But the general view, see, I mean, there are some notable exceptions and now a lot of academics are are working seriously on her and, and sort yeah. of acknowledging that she's a serious literary writer whose work deserves to be studied. Um, so that is happening. But there's still, I think, a view among a lot of sort of literary types that, she's sort of fun and disposable and easy and not proper literature. And I, mm. I think that that could not be more wrong, that point of view. I think the the mark of how brilliant a writer she is in a literary sense is how much you get from reading her books, even when you already know every detail of the plot. And, you yeah. know, she's got it all. She's got wisdom and insight and psychological astuteness. And it kind of baffles me that people don't see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think she's as good. Like, I think she's as good as Virginia Woolf and Margaret Atwood and Charles Dickens, and like I seriously do. Well, I I think part of the issue is how we rate like, what we think of as good writing, because you know, part of it there's kind of this idea that you have to like struggle to create a book, and it should be over many years, and it has to be this kind of like long suffering. Uh, journey for the writer. And she was producing sometimes three or four books a year. And so I think people see that as like, well, it must have just been so easy for her without understanding the level of intense work that was going into what she was doing. Um, and yeah, but I, I mean, I think, we should, you know, 
I agree. I think that is what a lot of people think. Yeah. But surely we judge works of art or literature on the work itself, not yeah. on, you know. And uh, I mean, I certainly could not produce. No. The, uh, you know, it, it is incredible yeah. that she wrote such brilliant books yeah. so quickly. I do find it almost like magic. But that was because she was a great literary genius. So that, mm. that to me is even more of an argument of, of yeah. why she should be taken more seriously and actually I think yeah. that you're right that people have different criteria for deciding what what makes a great book and for mm. me one of the key things that makes a great book is if millions and billions of people all over the world want <laughs> your books by yeah. the boatload that is a good book yep. <laughs> for me you know how can that not be the main you know, means by which we assess such things. And then when you think that on top of that, there's also all the wisdom about life and, and the human condition mm -hmm. um, and the brilliant prose. You know, some people say her prose is not particularly special and some people think it's a bit too too simple and some people call it wooden. But I just think her writing is beautiful and elegant and mm. economical, um, you know, like like a sort of perfect diamond or something. Mm. I, I find that I, I generally do really appreciate her prose, but I, I also agree with something you said earlier, which is that some of her books are not good and some of them are works of like staggering art. And I think that they're part of the fact that she produced so much is that we get to see a bit of her journey as a writer where sometimes maybe she wasn't so invested in it, or maybe sometimes she was tired or whatever was happening. Not every single work is equal to each other. Um, and which makes her more yeah. interesting. Yes, for those absolutely, absolutely. Her. That makes her more but interesting. I love the fact. I love the fact that she wrote, and then there were none. Mm -hmm. But she also wrote Passenger to Frankfurt. <laughs> yeah. which, you know, I found that book thoroughly enjoyable, but you wouldn't call it like it's not like a work of great literary brilliance. Whereas, no. and then there were none. Absolutely, is and the same person wrote both. I think that's yeah. quite cool. Yeah, I, and I, I for me, I one of the things I love most about her work are the characters. Poirot and Marple to me are, I mean, I, I think of them as friends in a weird way. Yeah, I've spoken about this on the, on the podcast before, but you know, then she also created characters who I absolutely can't stand. I, I cannot pick up a Tommy and Tuppence novel. I just can't, I find them completely irritating. So, yeah. you, you know, like, I think there's also that, that for me is also very interesting that she went on to write a number of those books and clearly kind of enjoyed those characters, but she also created these characters that I absolutely love. So as you say, when there's more layers, there's more depth, it becomes more interesting to kind of explore the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, love, I love some of the Tommy and Tuppence books. I mean, I you love. Do. <laughs> I love by the pricking of my thumbs. I think you do. That is a great book. Yeah. yeah, but mainly because, like we were saying about you know really unusual premises, the fact that at the very beginning, Tuppence is in the the sort of lounge in the old people's home, mm. and this this elderly woman is looking into the fireplace, and then she turns to Tuppence and says, "Was it your poor child?" Yeah. And it's just so sinister and gripping, and you immediately have to find out mm. this child. What's happened? Was there a child in the fireplace? It's just so, so suspenseful. Yeah, that's true. It is a great, it is a great um, opening. Um, but I just, I don't know, something about their relationship just I find really too cloying, and I, yeah, I can't. I just yeah. don't reread them. <laughs> that's just how I feel about <laughs> it. But, um, but I'd love to go back a little bit to 
your taking on of the Poirot character. Can you tell us a little bit about how Agatha Christie's family approached you and what that process has been like for you? Yeah, well, first of all, they they only approached me because of something my agent did. They would never. That's a good agent. <laughs> good agent. It's a brilliant agent. So they wouldn't never have approached me, and I would never have approached them. I don't think it would have occurred to either of us to approach each other. My agent was at a meeting at Harper Collins Publishers, and Harper Collins published Agatha Christie. And he happened to be sitting in a room with a shelf next to him full of Agatha Christie's books. The meeting was nothing to do with Agatha Christie, nothing to do with me. He was just there talking about one of his other authors and something completely unrelated. But he noticed these Agatha Christie books and he remembered that I was a big fan. And he suggested to HarperCollins that they should commission me to write a new Poirot or Miss Marple book. And he was told very firmly by HarperCollins that the family, the Christie family, would never hear of such a thing. Right. But the very <laughs> next day, the very next day, by sheer coincidence, the Christie family told HarperCollins that they were thinking of commissioning a new Poirot or Miss Marple novel. So it was purely because of that coincidence of timing that I was invited to a meeting and, and offered the gig, as it were. That is incredible. What a good agent. <laughs> okay. he, he, amazing he's been my agent since I first started writing crime in 2005 and I absolutely adore him well that's visionary really incredible um and so and so once you were approached what was that process like did you, you said did you say yes immediately did you have to think about it uh I said yes immediately <laughs> yeah. I, I've done all my thinking already you know <laughs> when, when my agent said we'd been invited to the meeting, you know, I did a lot of thinking. Um, at that point, actually, I didn't know what the meeting was about. It was quite strange. But, yeah, I had, as soon as my agent mentioned it to me, that was when I started to think about it. So, yeah, when they actually said, would I like to do this, I said, yes, please. And it was a fairly – people have said to me a lot since, wasn't it a massively daunting prospect? Mm. And I've said, you know – I never thought of myself as daunted. What I thought of it as was a massive creative challenge. Yeah. And I thought this is going to be the most exciting thing ever. I've been offered the finest ingredient in English crime fiction. And I would be silly to think of this as scary and daunting rather than the most exciting creative challenge that could possibly happen to me. So I just decided to turn those apprehensive feelings or rather to define those apprehensive feelings as excitement rather than terror. <laughs> <laughs> and I also thought, you know, when I'm nervous about something, I, I visit in my mind, I visit the worst case scenario. And I thought, well, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is either I will write a book that I don't think is good enough or I will write a book that the Christie's don't don't think is good enough and in either of those eventualities we would just not publish the book right so the very worst thing that would happen is I would have to say to the Christie family I'm terribly sorry I tried my hardest but I just couldn't do it and I was totally willing to fail if that was you know I thought you know that's that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world they'd think oh well and they'd ask someone else to do it who would be able to do it so yeah, I mean, I just decided to define my slightly nervous feeling as excitement. And I thought, actually, if I'm writing 
a book featuring Agatha Christie's most famous character, then I'm kind of working for Agatha Christie. I'm working to remind the world of how brilliant a detective Poirot is mm. and how brilliant all of Agatha's books about him are. Um, so I felt as though I was sort of working for something greater than myself and, you know, really important in the world of crime fiction. And so it just felt like a really kind of amazing thing to be doing. Yeah, it it really is. And and such a gift, as you say, to to get a character like that and be able, as you, you called it a tool. And I love that because he is an incredible tool within a crime fiction novel. Um, in terms of like taking on another writer's voice was was it ever your plan to try to write as Christie, or is the idea to take on the character but kind of write with your own voice yes I was very sure from the beginning that I did not want to try and mimic Agatha mm. Christie's voice or her actual writing style her prose style I don't think one writer can or should imitate another in that way yeah. apart from you know, as a parlor game for the purposes of parody, but as a serious enterprise, I don't think people should try and mimic other writers. Mm. Uh, and I definitely didn't want to do that. So what I decided I wanted to do was write a book that totally reflected Agatha Christie's storytelling priorities. So everything her Poirot novels did brilliantly, I tried to make sure that mine did as well. But I was writing very much in well, not in my voice, but in the voice of a character I had created who is not in Agatha Christie's novel. So all of my Poirot novels, I've published four so far, and I'm writing the fifth at the moment. Mm. All of them are narrated by the character who is Poirot's sidekick for the purposes of my books about him, uh, a Scotland Yard inspector called Edward Catchpool. Yeah, he's a great character. Thank you. So all my Poirot novels are written in the first person from Catchpool's point of view. So I thought that was a sort of sensible way of approaching the situation because I knew that I was going to be a new voice and a new person writing about Poirot. Mm. And so it seemed to make sense to me that my books would contain a new voice and a new character writing about Poirot. So that if anyone read my Poirot novels and thought, hmm, the the style or the voice is a bit different from in Agatha Christie's novels, well, there would be a sensible reason to explain that. We're hearing from a different character, both in the sense that we're hearing from Edward Catchpool and also that we're hearing from me. And and me and Catchpool were not there when Agatha Christie was writing her Poirot novels. Yeah. And and your books are set at the kind of, you know, the same time, obviously, the Poirot books are set. But um, did you have any kind of um, feelings about, you know, a lot of a lot of the criticism of Christie's work today is that it's out of date and a lot of it is problematic in terms of the language. Um, was that something that you were very keen on kind of wiping out from your work? Um, so we decided that my first Poirot novel should be set in 1929. Mm -hmm. And we decided on that for a very deliberate reason. So Agatha Christie didn't write or publish any Poirot novels between 1929 and 1932, mm. or did write a play that featured Poirot. But in novelistic terms, Poirot was unaccounted for during wow. that period. So we decided that any and all Poirot novels that I ever write will be set in that period. Oh, I love that. And I wanted to set my Poirot novels at that time because 
that feels to me like the perfect Poirot era. Mm. And in fact, Jennifer Christie did write about him, you know, right up to the 70s in, in for example, Hickory Dickory Dock and Third Girl, two right. of her the novels. Um, Poirot is there sort of lamenting the fashions of the young people and <laughs> yeah. why does everyone not wash their hair and why does yeah. everyone so badly. And, you know, I, I love reading about older Poirot uh, in a time that he feels is not his ideal era. But when I was thinking about when I wanted to write about him, I definitely wanted the setting of that sort of 20s, just early 30s. That felt to me like the perfect Poirot era. Mm. Um, and in terms of the attitudes of the day, um, I did want to include – I didn't want to make – my novels unrealistic for novels set in the 1930s mm -hmm. or 20s so um i i had to sort of for example in the in the first one in um the monogram murders there's a vicar's wife who expresses the opinion to catchpool at a certain point in the plot that people should be with the people they love not necessarily the people to whom they are married now that was a very unusual opinion for a vicar's wife to have in the right. 19, late 1920s. So that felt as though I was pushing it a bit, but I did it because I was able to make her a very unorthodox, rebellious kind of character. So what I try and do is reflect how I think things would have been in that time, but mm. without using language that we wouldn't put in a contemporary novel and that right. is quite easy to do so for example yeah. there are places where in my Poirot novels other characters express some prejudice on account of him being what they see as a foreigner and I've I've kept those things in because part of the joy of a Poirot novel in my opinion is seeing how all the English characters underestimate him because they think, oh, he's a foreigner. Right. Um, and, I, you know, if you lose that, then you lose the, the joy of him actually being so much cleverer than all the people who are prejudiced against him. So That's right. Things, things like that I've kept. And, and, you know, so hopefully the attitudes of the time are realistically reflected. But I, I haven't used language that I wouldn't use in my contemporary novels. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to get into the book that you chose for this podcast, which was Evil Under the Sun. And I'm just going to do a short little kind of historical note about it. Um, okay. And then we'll dive in. So Evil Under the Sun was published in 1941, the year after One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, and the year before Five Little Pigs, which are all Poirot's. Um, it was published the same year as a number of Marple short stories, including Strange Jest and Tape Measure Murder, and was also published the same year as the Tommy and Tuppence book, NRM. Uh, critical reception of the book was overall very positive, with reviewers pointing out the complexity of the plot and Christie's mastery of those complex points. Um, it was adapted in 1982 with Peter Ustinov in his second outing as Poirot after Death on the Nile, which was in 1978. Uh, and the adaption also starred Jane Birkin as Christine Redfern and Diana Rigg as Arlena Stewart Marshall. Um, I love this little quote from Ustinov who said, uh, I find Poirot to be a very engaging character, although he's quite awful, really. I should hate to know him. He's very vain, self-contained, and finicky. People have asked me why he's never married, because he couldn't solve it, of course. An ancillary reason is that he's very much in love with himself. He has probably been quite true to himself. I don't think he's ever cheated on himself. Um, I don't really agree with that quote, but I think it's interesting to hear Ustinov's take on 
Poirot. Um, Sophie, can you give us a one minute or less synopsis of Evil Under the Sun? Oh, okay. Well, Poirot, <laughs> Poirot is on holiday. Yes. Um, and I can't actually recall why. Maybe he's been advised to go to the seaside for his health. In any case, whyever he's at the seaside, he's he's not massively enjoying it. He feels, no. <laughs> you know, too hot and he's wondering why everyone's obsessed with sunbathing and wearing swimming costumes all over the place. So mm. he doesn't seem in his ideal element. But there he is by the seaside. And because it's a holiday resort, there's lots of other holiday makers there. Um and they're very interesting characters. Some are kind of brash and sort of uh, attention-seeking, and others seem very angry, and others have a sort of apparent love triangle situation going on. So there's lots of interesting goings-on with the other resort guests. Um, and then a very beautiful woman called Arlena Stewart is murdered, and Pryor has to solve the mystery. But that actually makes it sound much more basic than it is it's yeah I think it's one of Agatha Christie's most perfect crime novels I think there's you know even among her best novels very few of them are completely flawless I think Evil Under the Sun is a completely flawless novel it has an amazingly clever solution so much unexpected unguessable brilliance that you just do not see coming amazing cluing all the way through a fantastic atmosphere and cast of characters um, and I'm constantly surprised that more people don't name it as their favorite or one of their favorite Christie mm. novels. It also has one of my favorite Poirot tropes which which is kind of the omniscient Poirot where he warns someone not to commit a crime um, and they don't interpret it that way obviously until it's too late yeah uh, he, yeah exactly. he does he does that in death on the nile as well um and i i love that poirot i love the kind of uh, you know trying to say something and skirting around what he's really trying to say um so i i do i do love this novel it is very complicated in terms of all the twists and turns um but uh that's interesting that you say you think it's a perfect novel what what about it is perfect to you Oh, I, I just mean that as well as, I mean, there's lots of Agatha Christie's novels where there's amazing amounts of brilliance. So, and then there were none, Murder on the Orient Express. Those are two examples. Uh, Appointment with Death, I think mm -hmm. is amazing. But with most of them, if I was being strict, I could find little things I could nitpick about. Mm. If I, obviously, I wouldn't want to because it's Agatha. <laughs> right. <laughs> With Evil Under the Sun, I think there is nothing on which you can fault it at all. Mm. Like the plot works brilliantly. The characters are amazing. The solution is incredibly clever. I, I just, you know, I couldn't, you know, find fault with it if I tried. That's so interesting. I also think that one of the strong parts of this book is the location, the setting. Um, oh, I, I love yeah. I love the Poirot on holiday in the English countryside uh, you know, kind of that we see again and again. W what about this setting do you think, what, what does it evoke for you and what do you think it evokes for readers in general? Because it is a popular type of um, setting for his books. I think one of the things that makes that sort of holiday setting so brilliant, and I, I think this particular seaside venue is very well described. You yes. feel it, Agatha Christie knows it, 
inside out. And I believe, I could be wrong about this, I believe it might be based on Burr Island. Yes, I read that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And she she would have known that quite well. So it really comes to life. Um, But I think what's great about the Poirot on Holiday novels is that nobody, none of the cast of characters needs a reason for being there because everyone's just there on holiday. So that makes it kind of harder to to guess in a way. It's like, Mm -hmm. why are all these people here? Well, they're all just here on holiday. That gives them all a reason for being there. Whereas normally in other sort of murder mystery situations, the question of why someone was where they were might arise, but it just doesn't if everyone's on holiday. So it has a wonderful sort of equalizing effect on the suspect they're all in the same relationship to the place they're all just there on holiday that's right and christy actually plays with that a little bit and she does this often with poro holiday books where all of the guests are kind of going like well why are you here are you are you here working is there some case going on and he's going no i'm just trying to have a holiday <laughs> you know yeah, he spends yeah. like all of his books where he's on holiday just trying to relax for 10 minutes and there's just like never not a murder you know yeah exactly yeah yeah and um, he never actually gets a holiday where he doesn't have to solve them. <laughs> we, we certainly never see it, no. <laughs> yeah, but but Linda, I find to be really spot on um, in terms yeah. of, of being a teenager and being kind of, um, you know, so kind of within herself and angry, but also sad. She's got like really layered, complex emotions that she can't really speak to. Um, What do you think about her as a character? Yeah, I think she's a brilliant character. She's one that really stands out, actually. And you sort of can feel her pain. Like, you know, you don't blame her, or at least I don't blame her at all for being thoroughly dissatisfied and uh, for feeling a bit neglected. And Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think she's brilliantly done. I, I agree. And I I think one thing that Christy doesn't do is kind of judge her father too harshly for the way that that relationship has gone. But there is such a, for me, when I read it, there's such a sadness there of how he's kind of, um, kind of closed himself off to her as a parent. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's really sad and, and very, very plausible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of Arlena Stewart Marshall. She is, for me, such a fascinating victim. Um, she's almost like the perfect victim in some ways. What do you think of her as a character? I think the role she plays in the plot is brilliantly done. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is her as a character, but it's also her structural position in the plot mm. because. She behaves in such. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to give any spoilers. No, because um, there, if there are people who uh, who don't yet know the plot of Evil Under the <laughs> I envy those people. I don't want to ruin it for them. Um, th- the role she plays, you absolutely think you've got it all worked out, and you know who she is and what she's about, um, and the way in which you think differently not actually it's not that you think differently about her character but you you realize that you've been making some assumptions about her yeah just based on nothing and the way the plot turns out you go oh so I was just assuming all of this about this character that wasn't actually given to us Mm -hmm. but you totally assume certain things and then you turn out to be wrong yeah 
Absolutely. And, and, and there are kind of, as we spoke about earlier, there are um, kind of brief outlines that Christy gives that really sh- shape a character very quickly in our eyes. And I think she really uses, weaponizes that in this book where she creates this kind of outline of Arlena Stewart, where we are as the audience kind of reading into her things that we, ha- as you say, haven't been proven, haven't been assumed. Yeah. 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 And we, yeah. It, one of the, I mean, I, I teach crime and thriller writing mm-hmm. at master's level in Cambridge University. And one of the things that I'm always, whenever I've ever taught crime fiction, one of the things I always say is that, yes, the duty of a crime writer is to mislead the reader, but it's even better on those occasions when we can just stand back and do nothing and allow the reader to mislead themselves. Ah, say, say more um, about that. So uh, let me try and think. Okay, I'll give you an example from one of my books that mm-hmm. isn't a Barrow novel. So in one of my crime novels, one of my contemporary crime novels, uh, somebody asks somebody else to show them their passport as proof of that. I think the police ask a woman to show them her passport as proof of her identity. And she shows them a passport and and makes some offhand remark along the lines of, you know, yeah, I'm afraid it doesn't look much like me. You know, it's not very flattering. Um, and the police, th- the policeman thinks, yes, you're much more attractive in real life or whatever. And at that point, the reader is meant to think, oh, yes, I know lots of examples of people not looking like their passport photo because mm-hmm. we all we all have that in our anecdotal experience, endless examples where we look at someone's passport photo and go, that looks nothing like you. Now, in fact, in the scenario in my book, the woman is presenting a completely different person's passport <laughs> and, and it's not her. So she's lying about who she is. Right. And I'm in that scene when I show her showing the passport and saying, yeah, it's not very flattering. Sorry. And the policeman thinks, no, you're much more attractive in real life. I am relying on the, on the reader thinking, oh, of course, no one looks like their passport photo. So the reader uses what they know of passport photos in real life to mislead themselves and assume that this must just be a passport photo that, like all those other ones, doesn't look like its owner. And in fact, what's really going on is someone's lying about their identity and using a fake passport. So that is an example of I I didn't have to do anything to mislead the reader. I just Mm. knew that at that point they would be assuming that nobody looks anything like their passport photo. So that's just one example. And Mm. something very similar structurally happens in Evil Under the Sun in relation to Arlena Stewart and what we think about her. That's right. And I I I said before that this was kind of the critical reception of this book was that it was so complex that people kind of said, like, only Christie could write this kind of book. It's so complicated. Um, And it it does have a lot of twists and turns to it. But I think that um, you kind of it doesn't even feel like a suspension of disbelief. It just feels like a really crazy thing that happened on holiday as you're reading it. Um, Some of I I don't even I don't even think it's that complicated. I mean. It makes me laugh sometimes when people describe sometimes, especially, you know, recently when everyone's got such a short attention span. If people say a book is complicated, they they often mean, you know, the narrative isn't entirely linear from start to finish. (laughs) 
there's more than three characters. I think Evil Under the Sun is the perfect, at the perfect point on the the kind of Richter scale between Mm. too simple and too complicated. It's just, it's appropriately, (laughs) but it's not too complicated i think no i mean obviously that the mystery holds up it's a very um as i said you don't need to suspend disbelief it doesn't feel like you're kind of going like well come on that's just too much uh it it feels very much like something that you're kind of watching happen on holiday and you're going like oh my god um so i i agree with you but say a little bit more about kind of the the point the perfect point between too simple and too complicated. What is too, what is too complicated for you? Um, I mean, I actually quite like complicated crime fiction as, as long as I don't lose track of who is who, you know, Mm -hmm. if there's a lot of characters, that's fine. If there's too many characters and they're all vying for the position of main character, then I can sometimes think there's just too many people here or if there's too many twists or too much going on then obviously Mm -hmm. that will put me off as it would put off many readers but I have a high tolerance for twists and complication and as long as I can follow it all then I'm very happy with that I can think of a couple of crime novels where at a certain point I've thought really another (laughs) twist there have already been 17 twists right and I can think of one crime novel in particular where there were just too many main characters. There were mm. about 17 main characters. Mm. And each time we went to a different point of view, you'd forgotten about that person because you'd had the other 16 points of view. Right. Immediately before. But it's very rare, actually, for me to think something is too complicated. But certainly with Agatha Christie, I, I would say the most complex of her books structurally is... Um, Lord Edgware dies Mm, and that's the only one where when I got to the end I thought actually I kind of wish I'd made notes to (laughs) understand how all this fits together but I think you know I I still loved it it's still one of my favorite Christie novels and I think certainly Evil Under the Sun cannot justifiably be accused of being too complicated Mm. yeah and I I also think that um one of the things as you said Christy does so well is she always has like kind of the right number of characters and they're always at kind of the right level of exposure within the book to make them not quite the main character but you understand who they are and you're invested in them and 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 in fact I I found it interesting um that in for example when she wrote Death on the Nile for the stage, uh, which yeah. she called Hidden Horizons, she took Poirot out because he felt like he drew too much attention as the main character. So I think she is so aware of that balance of character exposure um, and kind of who's vying for attention at a given moment. Um, and that's kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Yeah. Also, she also takes Poirot out of the hollow in the stage play version. Ah, Interesting. Yeah. He's in the novel of The Hollow, but he's yeah. not in the stage play. That is so fascinating because the novel, The Hollow is one of my favorite. Yes, mine um, too. Yeah. And and to not have him in there would be, I can actually imagine it. I can imagine what that would be like because he is in so many ways the audience of that, of that book. You know, he's yeah. constantly being placed as like the audience of a cinema that's ongoing that he really could be pulled out, I think, quite easily. But um, I have to say, I mean, Christie always says, uh, or said rather, that um, 
she regretted putting Poirot in the novel of The Hollow. Ah. I think possibly, possibly her publisher felt they were due a, a Poirot novel and she wanted <laughs> the story of The Hollow and she just sort of stuffed him in there. But I have to say, I do love him in the book. Mm. Uh, you know, yes, he is, like, he is like the audience for the action, but it works for yes. me. I would not prefer The Hollow not to have Poirot in it. No, I completely agree with you. I I I love how he acts as the audience. And in fact, I think it is kind of Christie's understanding of how cinematic her work is um, that is like at play in that book. She really, uh, that's really like highlighted throughout The Hollow. And I, yeah, I just love that that book. I think it's so fantastic in so many ways. Um, yeah. But I didn't know that about the stage adaptation. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, there's no Poirot in the stage version of The Hollow. Wow. Very interesting. <laughs> I'll have to take a look and read it. Um, does it have a different name or is it just called The Hollow? No, it's still called The Hollow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And, but then I think Poirot is perfectly placed with an evil under the sun. I don't think you could take him out. He is, everything kind of turns on him in that book. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, I think evil under the sun, you know, if somebody said, I've never read a Poirot novel, give me a perfect mm. example of the species, I would mm. give them evil under the sun. Really? That's so interesting. You're, you're turning me around. I, I like evil under the sun very much, but I wouldn't have put it as my quintessential Poirot, but you're, you're convincing me. There's also something very, I don't really know how to describe this exact, exactly, but there's such a kind of oxygenated expansive feel to it and yeah one of the other Poirot novels that people rave about and rate very highly is Five Little Pigs mm -hmm. and I am not a fan of that novel at all I, really I like it I think it's brilliant you know I'm not saying I don't like it but it wouldn't be in my top 20 Agatha mm. Christie novels and part of the reason for that is that it's it has a very sort of shut down airless feel to it compared mm. to say evil under the sun or appointment with death or murder in mesopotamia where you really feel as though you're in a fully imagined fictional world with color and noise and stuff going on mm. i don't know there's something about evil under the sun that feels properly expansive and exuberant whereas five little pigs to me has always felt like sort of being pushed into a slightly airless cupboard that I know is... that's a really, a really weird way to talk about books, but no, that's... no, I, I completely understand. I, I think I, I hear what you're saying, and I definitely feel that it, there's a pressure element to Five Little Pigs, um, especially yeah. because you're also reading so many different narratives. Um, yeah. I, I happen to love Five Little Pigs, but I completely see what you're saying about the kind of expansive versus the enclosed. Yeah, yeah. and and. Um, but I, but I think that lens an urgency for me when I read Five Little Pigs. Um, and I think that urgency is there just there in a different way with Evil Under the Sun in terms of kind of the solving of the murder and what is propelling Poirot forward. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, Sophie, I have just had such a great time speaking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. And uh, where could people find you? Would you like to be found? And where can people find you on, <laughs> on all the social platforms and so on? Yeah, sorry, that was my dog growling in the... <laughs> he, likes, he likes to go to sleep at seven o'clock and he gets... Oh, no. Nice to it's way past his bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my website is sophiehanna.com. Yep. 
And at the bottom of the home page, you can sign up to receive my author newsletter, which is where I share all my news and gossip about forthcoming Poirot novels and other exciting things I'm up to. In fact, one of the exciting things I'm up to is that I'm about to release a movie. <gasps> wow. I, yeah. With, with a friend of mine, I wrote, uh, we co-wrote a murder mystery musical called <gasps> The Mystery of Mr. E. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. It, 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 Picture Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, but with lots of catchy songs. That's kind of the, the general vibe of it. And that movie is coming out either next year or the year after. So there's lots of going to be lots of gossip in my newsletter about all the movie stuff. Uh, so that's at sophiehanna.com. And then on the socials, I'm on Twitter as sophiehannacb1. I'm on Instagram as sophiehannawriter. And I'm on Facebook as sophiehannaauthor. We will have all of those in the episode notes so people can click through and follow you on all the platforms and definitely sign up for the newsletter because that is very, very exciting. I will also say that, um, you, you know, for lovers of Agatha Christie, definitely take a look at at your Poirot books, at Sophie Hanna's Poirot books. They are so well written. They capture Poirot so nicely. Um, but as you say, you don't take on her voice. It is it is a different voice. It's a different character. Edward Catchpole is a totally different kind of character than Hastings, um, which I appreciated very much. He's not kind of a, a, a doofus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Hastings, but he is a doofus. Um, yeah, and... well, I, wanted, I wanted Catchpole to be someone clever enough to benefit from Poirot's yes. mentorship. Absolutely. And and he's an empathetic character and he's a nuanced character. I really enjoy him. Um, so so check all of check all of those out um, as well. And we'll have all of those linked in the episode notes. Um, thank you so, so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Have a great night, Sophie. Thank you. OK, bye. Bye. Thank you to our producer, Kate Grishel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at TNMurder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Our next episode is the ABC Murders. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Our next episode is actually the last of the season, so thank you so much for joining us for season one of Tea and Murder. Season two will come out in the fall, but we'll be dropping a few little gems in between, so keep an eye on your podcast feed and Instagram. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.